Chapter 17 of the Boy Scouts on Swift River by Thornton W. Burgess. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 17 The Search Woodhull's preparations were soon made after the Indian had awakened him. His anxiety for Plimpton had destroyed his appetite, but he was too good a scout and woodsman not to appreciate the necessity of conserving his own strength and so he forced himself to eat a substantial breakfast with the guide. When Lewis was preparing for the voyage, he had hesitated for some time whether or not to take his knapsack. As long as they stuck to the river, it was useless. One more thing to look out for an additional weight on the carries, where every ounce counts. On the other hand, there was a possibility of a hike of two or three days in the mountains, in which case the knapsack would prove invaluable. And so, at the last moment, he had put it in. It was just what he needed now. In it he packed the emergency kit of first-aid supplies, a supply of crackers, a roll of herbwurst, a package of raisins, and last but not least, one of the venison steaks which he had brought in the night before. He did not forget salt, pepper, and some cocoa, sugar, and milk powder. He knew that Walter and Hal would feel half-famished after their short rations of the day before, and the walk down in the keen mountain air. And he wanted them to be in the best possible condition for what he feared might be a long, toilsome hunt for their missing comrade. With the knapsack on his back, his canteen filled with water, and his rifle in hand, Lewis was ready. The guide carried an axe, a two-quart tin pail, which he had chanced to have with him when he came into camp, and a small coil of rope, the painter taken from one of the canoes. Thus equipped, they struck the Mount Tucker Trail just as the first gray light stole through the woods. A heavy mist shrouded everything, and Woodhall was glad enough to leave it wholly to the Indian to find and keep the trail. This the latter did as by instinct, and by the time the fog began to lift, they were well on their way. It was Woodhall's plan to try and reach the junction with the Westspur Trail before Walter and Hal should, and there await them. This would give him a chance to prepare a hot meal and have it ready for the youngsters on their arrival, thus saving time. At the junction of the trails there was no sign of the boys. The mist was still heavy, although it was rapidly lifting. The guide at once started a fire and filled the pail with water at a spring close by. A short forked stick was driven into the ground and a long sapling was laid on this so that the butt projected over the fire. From this was suspended the pail of water. A piece of the venison was impaled on green twigs and propped up before the blaze, so that in a few minutes it was sputtering and sizzling merrily. The guide was an adept in this kind of cookery and devoted himself to the stake, while Lewis took his rifle and, stepping to one side, fired once and, half a minute later, twice in quick succession. Almost at once they heard the rolling yell of the Delaware some distance above, and they knew that Walter and Hal were on the trail and would soon join them. The mist disappeared, and in less than ten minutes the boys appeared, hurrying down the trail. The stake was done to a turn by this time, and after the first greetings, no questions were asked until a piece of the stake served on a piece of clean bark and flanked with a steaming hot cup of cocoa was before each of the famished youngsters. Then, with a few brief questions, Lewis drew out the story of the day before. "'You are positive that you saw Plimpton after passing this point?' asked Woodhall for the fourth time. "'Absolutely sure, Lewis,' 
replied Walter with his mouth full. A quarter of a mile up there is a big yellow birch stump. Close to the trail, and Hal and I sat on that while we waited for him. That was one of the times he was trying to follow the trail for himself. After that we went on together for a while, and it wasn't until we had gotten over that first lot of hedges that we missed him. He went off the trail either just before reaching the ledges or else on the ledges, I'm certain of it. I hope it was before he reached the ledges. If he got off the trail on them, he might have met with a serious accident. A fall up there might cost him his life, said Woodhull. Hurry up, you fellows, so that we can get a move on. If you were hungry, think of poor Edward. He didn't have anything in his pockets but a little sweet chocolate and some hardtack, did he? That's all, replied Walter. I had the herbworse with me. Have you saved some of this venison for him, Lewis? inquired Hal as he disposed of the last scrap of his own share. My glory, I never tasted anything half so good before in all my life, he added without waiting for a reply. The boys having finished their hasty breakfast, the whole party pushed forward to the birch stump where Walter and Hal had waited for Plimpton the day before. Here a brief conference was held. It's up to you fellows to show what your scout training is good for now, said Lewis. It makes all the difference in the world whether he left the trail before he reached the ledges or after, and we want to know. Keep your eyes peeled for some sign of where he made the wrong turn. A remembrance flashed through Hal's mind. Lewis, he began eagerly, I'm almost sure that he didn't reach the ledges. You remember, Walt, how we thought we heard him reply once to our yells before we started back and got lost ourselves? Walter nodded. Well, if he had been on the ledges, we would have heard him all right, continued Hal. It was because he was below the ledges and off to one side that we couldn't hear him. They just smothered his voice and threw it the other way. The Indian, who had been listening closely, grunted his approval of this reasoning. It was decided to examine the trail closely as far as the first ledge, and then, if no trace of the missing boy had been found to divide the party, Woodhall and Walter searching the ledges while the guide and Hal returned and re-examined the trail back to the birch stump. The whole party then moved forward slowly, carefully studying the ground for possible footprints. Walter was the first to find evidence that they were still going right, the print of a heel off a bit to one side. From the size they knew it was made by the missing boy. The guide came over and studied it closely, then he moved on in the lead as before. Presently Walter noticed that the Indian, instead of keeping in the trail proper, continually crossed it, going a short distance parallel with it first on one side and then on the other. "'What's he do that for?' muttered the boy. "'Search me,' replied Hal, his eyes glued to the ground. "'There's another print. We're right so far.' At every sharp turn in the trail the guide made a short circle. After he had done this three or four times, Walter began to understand the purpose. "'I'm on to that fellow now,' he murmured so that only Hal should hear him. "'He's looking for signs offside.' Hardly were the words out of his mouth when the Indian, who was out of sight behind some young spruces some thirty yards beyond the sharp turn in the trail, called to Woodhall. All three joined him at once and found him bending over a light but clear imprint of one of Plimpton's shoes. "'Him leave trail here,' said the Indian. "'Him not know him lost yet.' Taking the direction from the footprint, the four spread out, the Indian in the middle so as to cover as much territory as possible. 
and moved forward studying the ground and the surroundings more closely than ever. The direction was still up toward the ledges. As these were approached, it was plain to be seen that they could not be scaled at this point. Presently the Indian spoke again. Now him find him lost, him lose head. He pointed to a little bare patch of moist earth. There were several footprints pointing in different directions. One of these was deeper than the rest, and the Indian at once moved forward in the direction of this. Him rum now, he said, and presently pointed to some twigs bent and broken as by the passage of a heavy body. A little later he pointed to a mass of crushed ferns. Him fall down, he said briefly. With these mute evidences pointed out to them, the others could picture for themselves the panic and mad flight of the day before. And where once Walter and Hal might have regarded with something like scorn this evidence of loss of self-control, in the view of their own late experience they felt nothing but sympathy. The guy's intimate knowledge of the country was now invaluable. He knew that in his panic Plimpton would naturally have followed the line of least resistance, and now pushed ahead rapidly, making shortcuts which continually intersected the line of flight, thus saving much time. Every little while they stopped to shout and signal with rifle shots, after which they would listen in vain for a reply. Finally, after one of the Indian shortcuts, they failed to strike the trail where he had expected to find it. He at once bade the others remain where they were until he cast about in a wide circle. After a little while they heard him calling, and when they joined him found him smiling for the first time that morning. Him find head. Him good boy, all right, he said as he pointed to a maple which grew almost alone in a little opening. A broad, fresh blaze showed conspicuously on the side nearest them, and when they examined the tree they found three more. The tree was blazed on four sides. At one side was a fallen tree, and close to this were scattered fresh whittlings from a birch stick. It was all a mystery to Walter and Hal, but the guide and Woodhall seemed to understand it perfectly, and something of the anxious strain in the latter's face cleared. "'That's a sign for us,' he replied to Hal's question. He got himself together here and sat down to think it out. He knew that if he failed to get back to camp, we would search for him, he blazed this tree so that we would see it no matter what direction we might come from. If it had been blazed on one side only, we might have passed on the other side and not seen it at all. Just remember that in case you ever get lost. It is nothing to the discredit of a man to get lost in the woods, particularly in strange country. The very best of guides get turned around right in their own territory. It is losing his head, his self-control, that discredits a man. Plimpton got himself together here, and I'll warrant that he has left a plain trail that will take us straight to him. Let's examine those blazes. The boys walked close to the tree, and at once they saw a pencil mark in the middle of the blaze. It was in the shape of an extended X. They immediately recognized an old Indian sign, meaning, This path not to be followed. They had often used it when doing scout work at home or around woodcraft camp. Of course, there were no paths here, so they interpreted it to mean this direction not to be followed. The same symbol was found on two more of the blazes, but on the fourth was an arrow. Direction to be followed, shouted Walter. See, there is a new blaze on that tree over there to which the arrow is pointing. 
Hurrah! Sister is right on the job now. We'll find him in no time. Wait, said Woodhall abruptly, but in a low tone so that the others should not hear. Don't you think it would be a little more in the true scout spirit, the spirit of kindness, to drop that nickname Sister, and hereafter call Plimpton by his given name, or at least a contraction of it? I know why you fellows call him that. At first I was willing that you should, because I wanted the sting of it to spur him on. He was weak, weak physically and, because of his nervous temperament, lacking in self-control. He isn't strong physically now, though he has hardened up wonderfully. It is this fact that he isn't as strong as the rest of you that has worried me most in having him lost this way, but he is strong now in self-control and the proof of it is right on this tree. He has pulled himself out of a panic, and that is a thing that many a strong man has failed to do. This tree is a sort of monument to the boy's finding of himself, of his manhood. Forget that snake incident. That was no test, and can never be. It is something wholly beyond him at present, as is his tendency to faint at the sight of blood. Forget it. You and Hal have thought him a quitter, I tell you he has more sand than almost any youngster I ever met. I know that's pretty strong talk, but it's a fact. You fellows have no idea of the fight he has been putting up to overcome weaknesses with which he was born, and which his life and training previous to his coming to Woodcraft Camp tended to increase rather than diminish. He has never peeped about being called sister, but I know it hurts every time he hears it. Now is a good time to drop it. For if he has stood the test of a night lost on the mountain, and I believe he has, you can hardly call him weak any longer. Will you do it? Walter had flushed as he listened, but he was too fair-minded not to realize the simple justice involved in Woodhull's request, and he promptly agreed to drop the objectionable name. Thanks, replied Woodhull. I want this cruise to end with a true feeling of comradeship among us all, and it couldn't if you and Hal persisted in rubbing into Plimpton every time you spoke to him the fact that you regard him as a weakling. The whole party now moved forward along the trail that Plimpton had blazed. Now it was a bent twig, and again a blaze on a tree that guided them. The course was fairly straight, showing that the wanderer had regained full command of himself and picked his way carefully, bringing to bear such knowledge of woodcraft as he possessed. The direction was nearly due southwest, and presently the guide spoke. Him strike other trail pretty quick. Sure enough, a quarter of a mile further they struck the old West Spur Trail. I hope he didn't cross without seeing it, exclaimed Lewis as they approached it. He didn't, shouted Hal. There's a new blaze on that tree. Hal hurried forward to examine the blaze. He's gone in that direction he cried, pointing to an arrow in the middle of the blaze. The Indian grunted. Him go up, he said briefly, and at once took the lead. I wonder why he didn't go back to camp instead of going up the mountain, said Walter thoughtfully. For the simple reason that he didn't know in which direction camp lay, replied Woodhull. Right in here it's pretty flat and the woods are thick. It was beginning to get dusky when he got here, and he had lost all sense of direction. Probably he had no compass, and there was no way for him to get his bearings. He just took a chance, 
and by the time he found that he was wrong, it was too late to turn back. This trail is very much like parts of the other, and it is very likely that he didn't know that he was on the wrong one until he reached the top. You know he has never had any experience in mountain climbing. This trail is awfully blind because it is so little used, and I'm afraid he may have lost it somewhere up above. If he hadn't, it seems he would have started down as soon as it was light and would have heard us signaling. A worried look returned to Woodhall's face. But apparently the missing boy had succeeded in keeping to the trail. At every blind turn they found new blazes or bent twigs or three or four stones in a pile. Signs which he left for his own guidance should he have to return over the trail. Good scoutcraft, commented Woodhall as they noticed these. The party moved on rapidly, stopping only to shout and to signal with a rifle. As on the main part of the mountain, the trail led over a series of ledges. The vegetation grew more and more sparse, and at last the summit on the west spur loomed above them, bare rock for the most part, and covered with great boulders. Woodhall was growing more and more anxious. It was queer that they had heard no reply to their signals. Just before the last steep climb, he ordered all hands to keep silent while he signaled once more with three shots from the rifle. Hardly had the echoes died away when the guide held up a warning hand. "'Him there!' he exclaimed. Again Woodhull signaled, and all listened with strained attention. This time they all heard a reply, a faint, halloo! So faint, indeed, that they looked at each other almost in doubt. Again the signal, and again that faint reply. There was no doubt of it this time, and with a ringing cheer as by one impulse they started up for the top. Queer his voice is so faint. Do you suppose he stumbled over a ledge on the other side? panted Walter. That's what I'm afraid of, replied Woodhull. But I thank God he's alive, anyway. A hasty survey of the top when it was reached disclosed no familiar khaki-clad figure, and Woodhull waved the others to silence, while through his cupped hands he sent a ringing call over the mountain top. Hello, Plimpton! Instantly came the reply. Hello, Woodhull! The voice was weak, but it also had a peculiarly smothered sound and as to the direction there was none unless it might be said to issue from the ground. The party now spread out, and with shouts of encouragement began a hasty search among the great boulders scattered about. The replies had ceased, and there was nothing to guide them. Suddenly the guide stopped and pointed to a huge pine that lay freshly uprooted. "'Im lone pine landmark. Im gone now,' he said, and out of curiosity walked over to the fallen giant. A moment later an exclamation of astonishment brought the others hurrying to his side. They found him peering down into a great hole between the rocks exposed by the upturned roots of the tree. And in the dim light at the bottom they made out a white upturned face. It was Plimpton, and he lay there unconscious. End of chapter 17